Section 3 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 1, Section 3. Selections from The King of the Mountains by Edmund About. Translated by J. E. Tilton. Edmund About. 1828-1885. Early in the reign of Louis Napoleon, a serial story called Tolia, a vivid study of social life in Rome, delighted the readers of the Revue des Deux Mondes. When published in book form in 1855, it drew a storm of opprobrium upon its young author, who was accused of offering as his own creation and translation of the Italian work Vittoria Saborelli. This charge, undoubtedly unjust, he indignantly refuted. It served at least to make his name well known. Another book, La Question Romaine, a brilliant if somewhat superficial argument against the temporal power of Pope and priests, was a philosophic employment of the same material. Appearing in 1860, about the epoch of the French invasion of Austria and Italy, its tone agreed with popular sentiment and it was favorably received. Edmond Francois Valentin about had a freakish, evasive, many-sided personality, a nature drawn in too many directions to achieve in any one of these the success his talents warranted. He was born in Druze, and like most French boys of literary ambition, soon found his way into Paris, where he studied at the Lycée Charlemagne. Here he won the Honor Prize, and in 1851 was sent to Athens to study archaeology at the École Française. He loved change and out-of-the-way experiences, and two studies resulting from his trip, La Grèce Contemporaine, a book of charming philosophic description, and the delightful story, Le Roi des Montagnes, The King of the Mountains. This tale of the long-limbed German student enveloped in the smoke from his porcelain pipe as he recounts a series of impossible adventures, those of himself and two English women, captured for ransom by Haji Stavros, brigand king in the Grecian mountains, is especially characteristic of about in the humorous atmosphere of every situation. About wrote stories so easily and well that his early desertion of fiction is surprising. His mocking spirit has often suggested comparison with Voltaire, whom he studied and admired. He too is a skeptic and an idle breaker, but his is a kindler irony, a less incisive philosophy. Perhaps, however, this influence led to lack of faith in his own work to his loss of an ideal, which Sola thinks the real secret of his sudden change from novelist to journalist. Voltaire taught him to scoff and disbelief, to demand a quoi bon, and that took the heart out of him. He was rather fond of exposing abuses, a habit that appears in those witty letters to the Galois, which in 1878 obliged him to suspend that journal. His was a positive mind, interested in political affairs, and with something always ready to say upon them. In 1872 he founded a radical newspaper, Le XIXe Cycle, the 19th Century, in association with another aggressive spirit, that of Francisque Sarcy. For many years he proved his ability as editor, businessman, and keen polemist. He tried drama too, inevitably ambition of young French authors, but after the failure of Guillory at the Théâtre Français and Gatana at the Odéon, renounced the theatre. Indeed, his power is in odd conceptions, in the covered love and humorous suggestion of the phrasing rather than in plot or characterization. He will always be best known for the tales and novels in that terribly French style, clear, concise, and witty, which in 1878 elected him president of the Société des Jeunes de Lettres, and in 1884 won him a seat in the Academy. About wrote a number of novels, most of them as well known in translation to English and American readers as to his French audience. 
The bright stories originally published in the Moniteur, afterward collected with the title Les Mariages de Paris, had a conspicuous success and were followed by a companion volume, Les Mariages de Province, L'Homme à l'Oreille, Gazet, The Man with the Broken Ear. The story of a mummy resuscitated to a world of new conditions after many years of apparent death shows his freakish delight in oddity. So does Le Nœud du Notaire, the notary's nose, a gruesome tale of the tribulations of a handsome society man whose nose is struck off in a duel by a revengeful Turk. The victim buys a bit of living skin from a poor water carrier and obtains a new nose by successful grafting. But he can never more get rid of the uncongenial Aquarius, who exercises occult influence over the skin which he has parted. When he drinks too much, the notary's nose is red. When he starves, it dwindles away. When he loses the arm from which the graft was made, the important feature drops off altogether, and the sufferer must needs buy a silver one. About Slater's level, Le Roman du Bravram, the story of an honest man, is in quite another bind, a charming picture of bourgeois virtue in revolutionary days. Madelon and Le Vieux Roche, the old school, are also popular. French critics have not found much to say of this non-evolutionist of letters, who is neither pure realist nor pure romanticist, and who has no new theory of art. Some indeed might have scorned him for the wise taste which refuses to tread the debatable ground common to French fiction but the reading public has received him with less conscious analysis and has delighted in him. If he sees only what any clever man may see, and is no profound psychologist, yet he tells what he sees and what he imagines with delightful spirit and delightful wit, and tinges the fabric of his fancy with the ever-changing colors of his own versatile personality, fanciful suggestions, homely realism, and bright antithesis. Above all, he has the great gift of the storyteller. The Capture I raise my eyes. Two thickets of mastic trees and arbutus enclosed the road on the right and left. From each tuft of trees protruded three or four musket barrels. A voice cried out in Greek, Seat yourselves on the ground. This operation was the more easy to me, as my legs gave way under me. But I consoled myself by thinking that Ajax, Agamemnon, and the fiery Achilles, if they had found themselves in the same situation, would not have refused the seat that was offered. The musket barrels were leveled upon us. It seemed to me that they stretched out immeasurably, and that their muscles were about to join above our heads. It was not that fear disturbed my vision, but I had never remarked so sensibly the desperate length of the Greek muskets. The whole arsenal soon debouched into the road, and every barrel showed its stock and its master. The only difference which exists between devils and brigands is that devils are less black than they are said to be, and brigands more dirty than people suppose. The eight bullies who packed themselves in a circle around us were so filthy in appearance that I should have wished to give them my money with a pair of tongues. You might guess with a little effort that their caps had been red, but lye wash itself could not have restored the original color of their clothes. All the rocks of the kingdom had stained their cotton shirts, and their vests preserved a sample of the different soles on which they had reposed. Their hands, their faces, and even their moustaches were of a reddish gray, like the soil which supports them. Every animal is colored according to its abode and its habits. The foxes of Greenland are of the color of snow, lions of the desert, partridges of the furrow, Greek brigands of the highway. The chief of the little troop which had made us prisoners was distinguished by no outward mark. Perhaps, however, his face, his hands, and his clothes were richer in dust than those of his comrades. He leaned towards us from the height of his tall figure, and examined us so closely that I felt the grazing of his moustaches. You would have pronounced him a tiger who smells of his prey before tasting it. When his curiosity was satisfied, he said to Dimitri, Empty your pockets. Dimitri did not give him cause to repeat the order. He threw down before him a knife, a tobacco pouch, and three Mexican dollars, which composed a sum of about 16 francs. 
Is that all? demanded the brigand. Yes, brother. You are the servant? Yes, brother. Take back one dollar. You must not return to the city without money. Dimitri haggled. You could well allow me to, said he. I have two horses below. They are higher from the riding school. I shall have to pay for the day. You will explain to Zimmerman that we have taken your money from you, and if he wishes to be paid notwithstanding, answer that he is lucky enough to see his horses again. He knows very well that you do not take horses. What would you do with them in the mountains? Enough. What is this big raw-boned animal next to you? I answer for myself, an honest German whose spoils will not enrich you. You speak Greek well. Empty your pockets. I deposited on the road a score of francs, my tobacco, my pipe, and my handkerchief. What is that? asked the Grand Inquisitor. A handkerchief. For what purpose? To wipe my nose. Why did you tell me that you were poor? It is only my lords who wipe their noses with handkerchiefs. Take off the box in which you have behind your back. Good. Open it. My box contains some plants, a book, a knife, a little package of arsenic, a gourd nearly empty, and the remnants of my breakfast, which kindled a lot of covetousness in the eyes of Mr. Simmons. I had the assurance to offer them to her before my baggage changed masters. She accepted greedily and began to devour the bread and meat. To my great astonishment, this act of gluttony scandalized our robbers, who murmured among themselves the word schismatic. The monk made half a dozen signs of the cross, according to the rite of the Greek church. You must have a watch, said the brigand. Put it with the rest. I gave up my silver watch, a head retired toy at the weight of four ounces. The villains passed it from hand to hand, and thought it very beautiful. I was in hopes that admiration, which makes men better, would dispose them to restore me something, and I begged their chief to let me have my tin box. He imposed silence upon me roughly. At least, said I, giving back two crowns for my return to the city. He answered with a sardonic smile. You will not have need of them. The turn of Mr. Simmons had come. Before putting her hand in her pocket, she warned our conquerors in the language of her fathers. The English is one of those rare idioms which one can speak with a mouthful. Reflect well on what you are going to do, said she in a menacing tone. I am an English woman, and English subjects are inviolable in all the countries of the world. What you will take from me will serve you little, and will cost you dear. England will avenge me, and you will all be hanged, to say the least. Now, if you wish my money, you have only to speak, but it will burn your fingers. It is English money. What does she say? asked the spokesman of the brigands. Dimitri answered. She says that she is English. So much the better. All the English are rich. Tell her to do as you have done. The poor lady emptied on the sand a purse which contained twelve sovereigns. As her watch was not in sight, and as uh, they made no show of searching us, she kept it. The clemency of the conquerors had left her her pocket handkerchief. Marianne threw down her watch with a whole bunch of charms against the evil eye. She cast before her, by a movement full of mute grace, a chagrin bag which she carried in her belt. The brigand opened it with the eagerness of a custom-house officer. He drew from it a little English dressing case, a vial of English salts, a box of pastilles of English mint, and a hundred and some old francs in English money. Now, Sandy, patient beauty, you can let us go. We have nothing more for you. They indicated to her by a menacing gesture that the session was not ended. The chief of the band squatted down before our spoils, called the good old man, counted the money in his presence, and delivered to him the sum of forty-five francs. Mr. Simmons nudged me on the elbow. You see, said she, the monk and Dimitri have betrayed us. He is dividing the spoils with them. No, madam, replied I immediately. Dimitri has received a mid-pittance for that which they had stolen from him. It is a thing which is done everywhere. On the banks of the Rhine, when a traveler is ruined at roulette, the conductor of the game gives him something wherewith to return home. But the monk? He has received the tenth part of the booty in virtue of a memorial custom. Do not reproach him, but rather be thankful to him for having wished to save us when his convent was interested in our capture. 
The discussion was interrupted by the firewalls of Dimitri. They had just set him at liberty. Wait for me, said I to him. We will return together. He shook his head sadly and answered me in English so as to be understood by the ladies. You are prisoners for some days, and you will not see Athens again before paying a ransom. I am going to inform thee, my lord. Have these ladies any message to give me for him? Tell him, cried Mr. Simmons, to run to the embassy, to go then to the Pireo and find the admiral, to complain at the foreign office, to write the Lord Palmerston. They shall take us away from here by force of arms or by public authority, but I do not intend that they shall disperse a penny for my liberty. As for me, replied I without so much passion, I beg you to tell my friends in what hands you have left me. If some hundreds of drachms are necessary to ransom a poor level of a naturalist, they will find them without trouble. These gentlemen of the highway cannot rate me very high. I have a mind, while you are still here, to ask them what I am worth at the lowest price. It would be useless, my dear Mr. Hemman. It is not they who fix the figures of the ransom. And who then? Their chief, Haji Stavros. Haji Stavros. The camp of a king was a plateau covering a surface of seven or eight hundred meters. I looked in vain for the tents of our conquerors. The brigands are not sybarites, and they sleep under the open sky on the 30th of April. I saw neither the spoils heaped up nor treasures displayed, nor any of those things which one expects to find at the headquarters of a band of robbers. Haji Stavros makes it its business to have the booty sold. Every man receives his pay in money and employs it as he chooses. Some make investments in commerce, others take mortgages on houses in Athens, others buy land in the villages. No one squanders the products of robbery. Our arrival interrupted the breakfast of twenty-five or thirty men who flocked around us with their bread and cheese. The chief supports his soldiers. There is distributed to them every day one ration of bread, oil, wine, cheese, caviar, allspice, bitter olives, and meat when the religion permits it. The epicures who wish to eat marlows or other herbs are at liberty to gather delicacies in the mountains. The office of the king was as much like an office as the camp of the robbers was like a camp. Neither tables nor chairs nor movables of any sort were to be seen there. Haji Stavros was seated cross-legged on a square carpet in the shade of a fir tree. Four secretaries and two servants were grouped around him. A boy of sixteen or eighteen was occupied incessantly in filling, lighting, and cleaning the shibuk of his master. He carried in his belt a tobacco pouch, embroidered with gold and fine mother of pearl, and a pair of silver princers intended for taking up coals. Another servant passed the day in preparing cups of coffee, glasses of water, and sweetmeats to refresh the royal mouth. The secretaries, seated on the bare rock, wrote on their knees with pens made of reeds. Each of them had a hand of long copper books containing reeds, penknife, and inkhorn. Some tin cylinders, like those in which our soldiers roll up their discharges, served as a depository for the archives. The paper was not of native manufacture, and for a good reason. Every leaf bore the word BATH in capital letters. The king was a fine old man, marvelously well-preserved, straight, slim, supple as a spring, spruce and shiny as a new saber. His long white mustaches hung under his chin like two marble stalactites. The rest of his face was carefully shaped, the skull bare even to the occiput, where a long trees of white hair was rolled up under his hat. The expression of his features appeared to me calm and thoughtful. A pair of small, clear blue eyes and a square chin announced an indomitable will. His face was long, and the position of the wrinkles lengthened it still more. All the creases of the forehead were broken in the middle, and seemed to direct themselves toward the meeting of the eyebrows. Two wide and deep furrows descended perpendicularly to the corners of the lips, as if the weight of the mustaches had drawn in the muscles of the face. I have seen a good many septuagenarians. I have even dissected one who would have reached a hundred years, if the diligence of Osnabrück had not passed over his body. 
but I do not remember to have observed a more green and robust old age than that of Hadji Stavros. He wore the dress of Tino and all of the islands of the archipelago. His red cap formed a large crease at its base around his forehead. He had a vest of black cloth, faced with black silk, immense blue pantaloons which contained more than twenty meters of cotton cloth, and great boots of Russia leather, elastic and stout. The only rich thing in his costume was a scarf embroidered with gold and precious stones, which might be worth two or three thousand francs. It enclosed in its folds an embroidered cashmere purse, a Damascus sanjar in a silver sheath, a long pistol mounted in gold and rubies, and the appropriate baton. Quietly seated in the midst of his employees, Haji Stavros moved only the ends of his fingers and his lips, the lips to dictate his correspondence, the fingers to count the beads in his chaplet. It was one of those beautiful chaplets of milky amber which do not serve to number prayers, but to amuse the solemn idleness of the Turk. He raised his head at our approach, guessed at the glance the occurrence which had brought us there, and said to us, with a gravity which had in it nothing ironical, You are welcome. Be seated. Sir, cried Mr. Simmons, I am an English woman, and... He interrupted the discourse by making his tongue smack against the teeth of his upper jaw. Superb teeth, indeed. Presently, said he, I am occupied. He understood only Greek and Mr. Simmons knew only English, but the physiognomy of the king was so speaking that the good lady comprehended easily without the aid of an interpreter. End of section 3